Hello, and welcome to Out of Your Shell Podcast. Since this is a new podcast, there's a lot of ways in which it has not yet been defined. The nature of the podcast is still unfolding as we go. I'm pretty sure the majority of the episodes will not be religious in nature. All kinds of faith traditions are represented in the listenership of this podcast, and some come from no faith tradition. I'm very proud of the fact that many of the people that are listening to this podcast right now are agnostic or atheist. I wouldn't have it any other way. And I just want you to know that if you do not consider yourself religious, there is still room for you here. Because there are plenty of things that I want to talk about that have nothing to do with religion. So I hope you'll stick around. The reason I'm bringing this up is because today's podcast is going to be comprised of some reading of things that I wrote in 2014 when I was a seminary student at Earlham School of Religion in Richmond, Indiana. As you might imagine, a lot of things have changed between 2014 and 2022 when this episode is airing. But what I love about reading things that I've written in the past is that it shows where I come from, which is the purpose of today's episode. I want to share with you where I came from because I have a beautiful, rich history that I like to talk about. These are some of the stories that I love to share with my friends. So it's important that I'm sharing it with you today. At the time of this recording, the United States is approaching our Thanksgiving holiday. So I was reminded of this story that I wrote about Uncle Doug's Thanksgiving prayer. So I hope that you will enjoy this. One of my favorite ways to write is with memoir fragments. The reason I love it is because in the same way that I've talked about with this podcast, the episodes can be as long as they are, and they don't have to be any longer or any shorter. And I love that because there's freedom in writing that way. If I set out to write an entire book, I get intimidated. But if I set out to write a story, then there are no rules about how long that story needs to be. So I'm gonna share with you some of my memoir fragments And in between them, I'm gonna add a little bit of music just to indicate that I'm moving from one to another. Thanksgiving dinner at my in-laws has always been preceded with Uncle Doug leading us in prayer. He's the preacher in the family, and his prayers are sure to be an eloquent trip to the throne of grace. After all these years, Uncle Doug has it down to a science. He starts with a divine salutation. He leads into a word of thanks for family and friends and safe journeys from afar. Thanks for good health and prosperity in light of all those who are less fortunate, he prays. Thanks for the loved ones who could not be with us on this special day. The family is joined at the hands, standing in a circle around the dinner table. We smell the turkey that has just come out of the oven and the sweet potatoes nestled under melted marshmallows bubbling over the sides of the glass dish. 
In just a moment, we'll all sit down and start passing the heaping dishes. The first thing I'll reach for is the corny corn casserole. Or maybe I'll lift the linen and release the aroma from the basket of freshly baked rolls. But Uncle Doug has not retreated from the pearly gates just yet. The creamed green beans with onion straws will have to wait another minute. Thanks for another good year that is coming to an end, and the promise of more family gatherings like this one. Thanks for all the selfless men and women in the military. Thanks for all the noble leaders who govern our country. Thanks for all the unsung heroes in the soup kitchens and the devoted folks who deliver meals on wheels but who never get noticed. I open my eyes and shift my stance to the leg that is still awake. Why do we close our eyes for prayer anyway, I wonder? Where did that tradition start? Why don't we just talk to God while we pass the mashed potatoes? When my wife and I were dating, we had this conversation. Since childhood, I have pushed against the tradition of bowing heads and closing eyes in order to talk to God. I know it's supposed to help me from getting distracted when keeping company with the Most High, but usually the opposite is true. When I close my eyes, my mind becomes an amusement park. Besides, I don't think God cares if I stick a fork into the white meat while I pray. Thanks for the pastor and his family. Bless the poor folks who have no family. Bless all who are less fortunate in Africa, in South America, in the Philippines. Ruth made her cranberry chutney again this year. I don't like cranberries unless they're dried and shriveled and served on a salad. Diane brought those red velvet cupcakes she knows I like. The ones with the cream cheese frosting. Bless this time we have together. Bless all the hands that have prepared the meal today. And bless the food to our bodies that we may better serve you. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the giver of all good things and the worthy receiver of our eternal gratitude. Amen. A subdued chorus of amens ripples around the table and both my sweaty hands are gently squeezed before being released. And I wonder if the rolls are still warm. I believe in public prayer about as much as I believe in public nudity. There are some who feel completely comfortable waltzing merrily into the presence of God while in the company of friends and family, but I'm not one of them. My prayers, the ones that come from my most authentic self, are as flawed and hairy as my naked body. Most of the time, my prayers are wordless images, pictures scrolling through my mind like a spool of film viewed against a light bulb. But when I do talk to God with words, it's usually about things I wouldn't want to discuss with other people in the room. I talk about how uncertain my future is in a world where many people have to supplement their incomes with second jobs. I talk about how frustrated I am with my wife over a recent argument, or at myself, for not being as patient a listener as I used to be. 
I talk about inappropriate feelings or ugly judgments. Don't get me wrong. Not all my prayers are negative. Sometimes a song on the radio will unexpectedly become a prayer. I have been known to commune with God while I watch a squirrel chase its shadow around a tree trunk. I've offered God songs of thanksgiving when I watch the rain dance across my windshield and think of all who live in drought. God and I have done yard work together and changed brakes on my wife's car together. We built a climbing tree for my three cats, and we fixed a leaky washing machine. All of these things we do, and all of this time we share. But never do I use traditional prayer language or behaviors to commune with God. Not when it's coming from a place of authenticity. Last Thanksgiving, we gathered around the table to join hands. I expected Uncle Doug to get the traditional invitation to lead us in the blessing. Much to my shock and horror, my father-in-law proudly announced to everyone that since we have a seminarian in the family now, he should be invited to offer the blessing. Everyone smiled at me and nodded their approval as I tried to conceal my panic. <laughs> no, I tried to insist. Uncle Doug does a fine job every year. What would Thanksgiving be without Uncle Doug's beautiful prayer? My eyes locked with Julie's and the traitor just smiled and lovingly took my hand. Her words of encouragement echoed as if through a long tunnel. Her lips moved in slow motion. Good idea, honey. I stomped on my brain's accelerator and raced back in time to retrieve Uncle Doug's formula. Divine salutation, friends, family, safe journeys, less fortunate, Philippines, Corny corn casserole. No, that's not it. Meals on wheels. Shit. Blessings. Hands that prepared. Oh, but these hands were now clasped, and everyone's eyes were closed in anticipation for the journey that I was supposed to lead them on. My hands went from dry to clammy in two seconds flat. Dear Lord, and my mind went blank. Not even Meals on Wheels stuck around. All I could think was, we have gathered together in the presence of God and these witnesses. But that wasn't right. I looked at the tops of my family members' heads. I finally appreciated the eye-closing tradition. <laughs> this wasn't going to be pretty. The long silence that ensued might have been perceived as a contemplative practice that I had learned from spending so much time with Quakers. My lips parted several times, but words were like mirages, ever shrinking from my grasp. Finally, I stumbled through a blessing for the family gathered and the food we were about to eat and for the hands that prepared it. When I finished with a hasty amen, everyone looked up and smiled, squeezed each other's hands, and acted like that was exactly the kind of prayer they were expecting from their budding seminarian, their pride and joy. Or maybe they were just happy to be eating while the food was still warm. It's not that I don't believe in public prayers per se. I just don't like offering them. 
I guess I'm expected to be comfortable with it now that I'm in seminary. That's what people do in seminary, right? They sit around and talk about theology and pray. That's probably where Uncle Doug learned the right formula. But I haven't taken any classes like that yet. No one has taught me what to say in front of a turkey. I know, it sounds crazy. It's like training to be an auto mechanic but not feeling comfortable changing tires. Or going to medical school but getting queasy at the sight of blood. What kind of seminarian doesn't want to pray in public? If I am asked to offer a public prayer, I'm usually able to string together a few sentences that I think the gathered saints will approve of. But rarely am I actually talking to God. In my own relationship, sincere prayer is offered in images. And articulating images is a tall order, especially impromptu. So the things I'm saying during public prayer are for the sake of the people in the room. I'm usually taking into consideration the context of the occasion, the faith tradition of the, most of the people around me, the needs of the moment, any prayer requests that might have been mentioned, and like bookends, I'll slap an opening and a closing on the prayer that sounds good at the moment. I would treat that prayer the same way I would as if I were asked to tell great Aunt Gertrude in the presence of the gathered family what I think of the knitted oven mitts she gave everyone for Christmas. If I were being honest, I would tell her that they are completely useless for pulling a blistering jelly roll pan from a 420-degree oven, and that they will most likely sit in the back of the linen closet until she passes away and it's safe to donate them to Goodwill. But honesty is not the best policy in this moment. I'd be better off following the unwritten script. I would point out that the colors are so vibrant. The love that she put into making these gifts is obvious. What wonderful heirlooms to pass down through the generations. Oh, the stories we will tell about Aunt Gertie when we see these oven mitts, I would say. God often gets mistaken for Aunt Gertie. Don't say anything that might hurt God's feelings. After all, you should be thankful for everything God's done for you. If you don't understand God's logic, just pretend you do for the sake of everyone around you. Pretend it all makes sense. One of the problems with public prayer is that everyone has their own ideas of what prayer looks like, what it means to them, and how it should be performed. You can read books about how to pray and how to have your prayers answered, and you can hear sermons preached about what is and what is not okay to pray for. For instance, you're not supposed to pray for something bad to happen to your enemy. But when I read the book of Psalms, it's filled with prayers like that. May burning coals fall on them, David begs of God. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits, never to rise. When the Twin Towers fell in New York City in 2001, the world mourned. I was employed as a truck driver at the time, and talk radio was one of my favorite sources of entertainment. For weeks and months after the attack, on every station I turned to, I heard someone talking about the tragedy and speculating over what our nation's response should be. When people called in to insert their opinions, I heard honest, raw emotion. Some people wept on air. Some vowed to march across the ocean themselves and slaughter every last member of Al-Qaeda. 
Some people's faith in God was shattered in the face of so much injustice. Others' faith was bolstered by the response of American heroes. But as soon as I flipped the dial to some of the Christian stations across the country, I noticed a different kind of response to the horror. Instead of raw emotion, I heard things like, God is always faithful. Be comforted in the presence of God's grace. Let's all remember that we are to bless those who curse us and pray for those who persecute us. I wanted to scream at the faithful followers of God who, in spite of saying things I believed at the time to be true, seemed afraid to express any sort of ugly emotions toward God. They seemed to be protecting God's reputation and defending God, even in the most devastating circumstances. Or maybe they were afraid of offending God or possibly being seen as having too little faith in the face of hardship. Just once, I wanted someone to come on the air of a Christian station and say, God sucks. I wanted to hear someone else say what I was thinking. Where is God right now? I wanted to hear in the words of Psalm 10, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. Are people worried God will hear this kind of accusation and be shocked? Horrified at the insolence? I've heard some preachers demand complete submission to the mysterious ways of God. Regardless of how bad it gets, they say, God's ways are far above our ways and we should never question God's perfect plan. The funny thing is, I've never known God to make those kinds of demands. We all have a different image of God in our heads, and for much of my life, God has been like a parent. If I were a parent, I would cherish the times when I knew my child was being blatantly, painfully honest with me about her concerns. No need for her to think up a script to convey her thoughts. No need for reverence or fear of being punished for her anger. No dodging the ugly words or double-checking her facts to make sure she's being fair in her assessment of every situation. For these conversations, I would want her to relax and just tell me what's on her mind. Show me how she feels. And if she can't think of anything to say, she could just sit beside me on the couch and cry. As I grew out of childhood and started relating to myself and others differently, I started relating to God differently. I've come to realize that my perception of God changes almost on a daily basis. God becomes what I need God to be. God works at AutoZone and tells me that a little miracle in a bottle on sale this week for $9.99 will fix the fuel problem. <laughs> I guess I don't have to buy a yacht for my mechanic after all. God serves coffee at Deb's diner and glows with the news of her sister's new baby, born with Down syndrome and is cute as a bug's ear. 
God lives next door and has an oversized mayonnaise jar full of nuts and bolts, and just the right adapter for the gas line to hook up my clothes dryer. God has four arthritic legs and two pointy ears that swivel when he's mad. He weighs too much and is always hungry. He has a habit of missing the litter box, and his tail always gets stepped on in the kitchen. But he's the best hug around, complete with vibrating whiskers. God is a fire that spits and crackles while I read. God is a tulip that will not let winter have its way. God is a thunderstorm that lights up the horizon and shakes the porch under my swing. God is a lover who trims the rough edges from my day. God is comfort, and God is heartache. God is new life, and God is cruel death. I have heard it said that God never changes, but I believe that as I change, God changes too. Much of what I learned about prayer was from my parents. I learned that I could talk to God about anything. I could ask for help with a finals exam, or I could ask for a vacation home in Paris. Answered prayers are always a guarantee, I was told. Sometimes the answer is no, but there's always an answer. God is always interested in what interests me, I learned, and I believed it. I believed it because my parents were the closest thing to God that I knew and they were always interested in my life. I don't remember a single fight breaking out between my mom and dad. No slammed doors, no flying saucers, no angry curse words. My folks were conflict experts as far as I was concerned. In the heat of an argument, instead of raising the volume to drown out each other's words, they lowered the volume. The more intense the disagreement, the quieter it got. If I were to come into the kitchen and find my parents sitting at the table whispering to each other, I knew I'd better walk right back out. It is not a good time. If you think about it, it makes sense. When two people are yelling at each other, the volume has to keep escalating in order to be heard over the other person. But when the volume gets softer, you have to shut up just to hear what's being said. When God and I are having a disagreement, it's usually a very quiet affair. I don't feel the need to yell at God, at least not audibly. I may be slouched behind the wheel of my pickup truck, my eyes boring holes into the windshield. Outside, it looks like I'm concentrating, my ball cap sitting low on my forehead, brow furrowed against the rim of my sunglasses. But inside, there is a violent blue streak slashed across my vocabulary. God listens while my dagger words and my acid thoughts navigate through my brain and into my fingertips, white against the steering wheel. I have found that God doesn't feel the need to justify or explain things to me. But God also doesn't care what kind of language I use to express myself. And sometimes, if I listen hard enough, I can hear a faint echo of God's whispers. And then I have to shut up just to hear what's being said.
pray for you. I've heard that all my life. Being raised a preacher's kid made prayer a liquid asset. Prayer was a legitimate and well-used excuse when caught talking to oneself. Jesus' name was employed just as often to cast out demons from an errant bicycle chain as it was to bless the food at the dinner table. I was used to hearing people say that they would pray for me. And I much preferred it to, I'll put you on my prayer list. When I heard that, I envisioned my name being scribbled at the bottom of a wrinkled piece of notebook paper wedged between Gerald's kidney stones and Sarah's job interview. There were times in my childhood when prayer was wielded as a weapon. We were told to pray for our enemies, to kill them with kindness. I took this suggestion to heart and started praying for my <clears throat> ex-friend, Margaret, so that she would be saved. After all, if she got saved, she would stop wearing miniskirts. Did I mention that the hemlines were nowhere near the kneecap? So her skirts were immodest. And if she got saved, she would stop saying mean things about my brother behind his back. I prayed and prayed for her salvation, not because I cared about her eternal destination, but because I wanted her to start living life according to my standards. I asked her once if she was saved, and she said she was, but I didn't believe her. I decided that her behavior wasn't that of a good Christian girl. Salvation, I was told, can be determined by how a person behaves, and if someone claims that they're saved but doesn't exhibit the proper fruit of salvation, they probably weren't saved to begin with. Margaret didn't exhibit the kind of fruit I was used to seeing in the saved people I knew, but my faith was stronger than her determination to wear miniskirts. Every time I saw Margaret, I said, Nice to see you. I'm praying for you. She would just smile and walk away, but I knew her days were numbered. Every time I pictured the new, revised version of Margaret, she had cleaned all the makeup off of her face and donned a modest, knee-length skirt, and she was working with the ladies in the social hall kitchen while gently humming the chorus to How Great Thou Art. The more perfect the scenario in my head, the harder I prayed for her salvation, scrutinizing her every move for months to see if my prayers had taken hold yet. I would eventually have my way, I was certain, whether she liked it or not. Being told that someone is praying for me took on a new meaning a few years later when I left home at 18 to embark on my adulthood as a lesbian, it was not the fondest of farewells. Granted, I was not kicked out for being gay, as many young people are. But I decided I could no longer abide by the conservative rules under my parents' roof. I had to go. My mother told me regularly that she was praying for me, but instead of being a reminder of love, it felt like a statement of intent. She and God were teaming up on me to make me straight. It sounded like a threat. The words that she didn't say, but that I heard, were these. Any day now, God will answer my prayer and you'll turn your life around to the way I think you should live it. 
If I were to give my mother a chance to defend herself, I would probably get a much more reasonable interpretation of what she was actually praying for. But, regardless of what she and God talked about in the oversized recliner before dawn every morning, when she said that she was praying for me, I cringed. Would God grant her request? Would I wake up one day and be blindsided with marriage to a man? For all I knew, my mother could have a secret access code to God's treasure chest of answered prayers. And I could be sentenced to a life without parole in the arms of a man I didn't love. Where do you want to go? My dad asked, and I told him the country I had decided on. South Africa was the home of lions and elephants, and that's where I wanted to go. My father believed that if you wanted something bad enough, you could make it happen. That didn't work for everything, of course, but it would get me to Africa if I really wanted to go. My sister Christy had gone to Ireland. My sister Joyce had gone to Australia. Now it was my turn. All I needed was $2,000 and I'd be on my way. Coming up with $2,000 was not going to be easy for a 16-year-old, but I got to work. I babysat kids and worked extra hours at my fast food job. I mowed some neighbor's grass in the summer. I shoveled snow in the winter. I picked up cans from the side of the road to sell for coins. And I did odd jobs as often as I could. My final push to raise money was to present my trip proposal to the church and ask for a love offering. I labored over a speech that I was sure would move the congregation to reach for their wallets. All I needed to raise was $1,000, and surely a congregation of 100 people could come up with that. When Sunday rolled around, I gave my speech, and then I watched as the offering plate was passed around. There's someone putting money in, I observed. And there's another one. Oh, this is going to be great. When the service was over, I raced back to the business office and begged for the final count. Marilyn Slayback was my dad's secretary and one of my best friends in the church. Her eyes smiled over the rim of her glasses. $1,005, she announced. Hooray! I had raised my first love offering at the church, and I was on my way to Africa. I found out later that the congregation had generously donated $5 to my trip. My father wrote a check for 1000 So here's the thing about reading stories that you wrote almost a decade ago. (laughs) As you heard, I was in seminary when I wrote those things, and I had a very different theology than I have now. I'm no longer married to Julie, and I'm now in a beautiful relationship with a woman named Desiree. But some things haven't changed. 
For instance, I am still a firm believer in God using the language that we speak in order to speak to us. One of the things I was taught when I was growing up comes from the Bible. It says that we should not be leaning on our own understanding of God. But I disagree with that, and here's why. I think our own understanding is the best way for God to communicate with us. The best way for God to reach me is to chime in when I'm doing something else. What is the most likely way for God to talk to you? What are you typically doing when God talks to you? I would love to hear what you have to say. You can reach me at brentwalsh at outofyourshell.coach. I'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to subscribe so that you can be notified when my next episode airs. Thank you for joining me today on this walk down memory lane. Have a great day, and I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye for now.